0: I don't believe that people learn or will evolve if all we do is engage in diplomacy and dance around the core issues of where people are deeply offended and traumatized. And so I'm saying that quiet part so that people can be like, oh, I didn't know I was doing that when I said to somebody, oh, you know, you're so articulate or she's so smart or they're not a cultural fit for our organization.'" And so I'm, I'm just ripping the Band-Aid off. It is not easy
1: to develop a close, trusting relationship with people of different races. This can be one of the hardest bridges we cross. It's because we don't really understand each other and our experiences. Coming up, we're going to talk with Fatima Gilliam, the author of Race Rules... What Your Black Friend Won't Tell You. This book comes at a point in her career where she has spent a great deal of time helping leaders to develop equitable solutions in their organizations. Fatima is the founder and CEO of the Azara Group. She is a multifaceted professional with experience in law, diversity, leadership, and negotiation. She has a mission to cultivate strong leaders and foster the success of those she advises. Fatima's life and experience has given her insights into what it means to develop relationships across race and the power and impact that can have in your life and your work. I'm Dr. Adrian Johnson-Williams, and this is Equitable. Hello, Fatima. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Adrian. I'm really excited to be here with you today. I'm excited to have you. Um, let's start with just a question that's really easy to answer. <laughs> Who are you? How do you introduce yourself without talking about your work?
0: Well, yeah, it itch- I guess I haven't really thought about it that way, but I consider myself When I think about myself, I think of myself as being a Black American woman whose family has been in the United States for nearly 400 years, who cares deeply about democracy. Mm. Wow. What
1: other characteristics would you use to describe yourself?
0: Well, I like to say my secret power is that I'm a truth sayer. Mm -hmm. And you are. I happen to know
1: that. (laughs) Um, Now, please introduce yourself to the audience by talking about what you do for a living and what your career has been.
0: I like to help people and organizations get what they want. So sometimes that's helping them figure out what it is that they want and then strategically helping them get there. And I bring in the broad range of skills that I've developed over my career. So I started my career as a corporate attorney on Wall Street, practiced law for a number of years. From there, I went to Citigroup and oversaw their diversity recruiting for their U.S. businesses and then went to the United Nations where I was the head of finance and fundraising for North America for the World Food Program, and now I have my own consulting business. So I focus on issues of leadership development, diversity, inclusion, and negotiating. So I bring all of that to the table to help people and organizations get what they want. And how does
1: equity come into that work?
0: Well, it comes into the work that I do, especially with the diversity consulting work, right? Because I'm trying to help organizations Create more diverse, inclusive, equitable workplaces so that people of various backgrounds feel included and that they have access to opportunities so that they can thrive. That also comes into the more general leadership consulting work that I do, because if somebody wants to lead and manage in the 21st century, then they need to be prepared to engage with a broad range of people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And even with the negotiating that I do, you know, it's all about trust and building relationships. So mm-hmm. if people cannot engage across race and gender, then they're going to be very unsuccessful in with engaging with key stakeholders, clients, employees, customers, and the like.
1: Yeah, because more and more evidence is showing that diversity is actually better for
0: business. Right. It is better for business, right? People can have better, companies can have better return on investment, a uh, better short shareholder value they could be more profitable they can have lower turnover rates where people don't leave the company since hiring is expensive there are a lot of economic and financial gains from having a diverse workplace
1: yeah and how did you decide to move from being an attorney to doing this kind of consulting work
0: you know i've always been following my own path like i i'm not a traditional person I like to march to my own drumbeat. I have very strong ideological and political views. And I don't like being an employee. Mm. I like to be my own boss so I, ca- I can have control over my destiny and my future. And I don't feel stifled with my political beliefs when I'm, when I'm working for myself.
1: Yeah. So let's get into some of those beliefs. You have written a book called Race Rules. What Your Black Friend Won't Tell You. Now, this I've, I've, I've dug into this book. Of course, it is a tome. I'm going to tell my listeners, you really want to dedicate some time to this. And faculty members uh, in uh, universities, colleges who teach Black Studies or American Studies might want to use this as a textbook. It is quite impressive. Why this book? Where did it come from?
0: It's interesting you ask that, Adrienne. So I had the idea for this book five years ago. And that's when I started writing. It was August of 2018. And I was watching the news and it was another story of a Karen going viral for calling the police for no reason. And as I started to watch this news story, I thought of several different things. I thought of my lived experiences. I thought of the rinse and repeat questions that I get in my consulting work that Mm -hmm. I've also gotten in my professional career. And that I get from friends, you know, asking frankly, ignorant questions And I also thought about the things that white people say around me when they don't realize I'm black. And as the news story played, I had a light bulb moment. And I said, oh, white people need a manual. Mm. And so I decided to write that manual. And so Race Rules, which a black friend won't tell you, is a how-to guide Mm -hmm. on how to make more equitable decisions, how to develop stronger cross-racial relationships. Um, it's a choose your own race knowledge adventure. You want to understand, you know, cultural appropriation or tokenism? Go there. How to apologize? Mm-hmm. Hop to that chapter. Making mm-hmm. a me, voting rights, uh, a new term that I've developed, white welfare, which is about, you know, history and privilege. Go to that chapter. And I wanted to create something that is very different from other books that are out there. You know, there are wonderful books that talk about race, racism. The historical origin of Americans, you know, origin story of African enslavement and indigenous genocide. And they're very helpful for people to understand systems and structures and how things show up in society. And then what? Yeah. I'm focused on the and then what because I'm in the advice game. It is an advice book filling that gap of what can people actually do, right, so that. And giving them advice in real time when they have a what do I do racial quandary. It's a book that's helpful for whites, white people so that they can make better decisions. And it's also helpful for people of color. Right. So a person of color could read the book and they're like, oh, that's what I experienced. And they could see their words, their experiences brought into words. And then they can verbalize Mm -hmm. or engage in conversation. And I also consider the book like a Leave Me in Peace book. Right yes. for people of color, like oh, you have you have a question about colorism or colorblindness, rather you have a question about how to define race. Don't ask me. Read her chapter, mm-hmm. and so you know that is how the book is helpful. And to your earlier point, Adrian, for schools and institutions and uh, places of higher learning, I think Race Rules is a perfect tool to integrate into curricula. You mm-hmm. know. So, even like a freshman orientation type thing, yes. right? So that they can, students coming in are going to probably be living in the most diverse environment they've ever lived in. So how can they engage in a non-offensive way with their roommate mm-hmm. or someone in their classroom and not become that person? Yes,
1: yes. So um the audience uh, won't know this, but we went to college together. We were classmates. And what's great about this is that I remember um sitting around in ethos our black student organization and talking about this very kind of thing right someone saying we need a book um a white girl's guide to black girls by black girls or we need a book we need to be able to say go read this stop asking me these things and you wrote the book fatima you wrote it and i'm Ray sure it. many of us will be grateful for years to come because <laughs> we'll be able to just say here here's a book you can read so thank you on behalf of all of your former classmates who used to talk about this all the time.
0: You're welcome. And I'm, you know, I'm glad to have written the book. You know, part of it is like it, my book is an unvarnished truth book. And at some point, somebody has to say the quiet part out loud. Yeah. I am raising my hand to say that quiet part out loud because somebody has to do it. And I don't believe that people learn or will evolve if all we do is engage in diplomacy and dance around the core issues of where people are deeply offended and traumatized. Yeah. And so I'm saying that quiet part so that people can be like, oh, I didn't know I was doing that when I said to somebody, oh, you know, you're so articulate or oh, yeah. she's so smart or mm-hmm. they're not a cultural fit for our organization. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm just ripping the bandaid off in the hopes that people learn and, and to make this a useful and helpful tool, what is critical is for people to know that it exists. Yes. Right. So I've written what I think, to be frank, I think it is an exceptional book. I think it is very helpful. I personally think it's, it's written in a way I write for the lazy reader. Yeah. <laughs> lazy reader, you know, <laughs> so people can hop around and it has like powerful illustrations mm-hmm. and translation charts and shaded boxes. So there's like the cheat sheet to the cheat sheet, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's very useful for people, but it will only be as useful as it is used. Yes. So people need to use it. They need to buy it. They need to tell their friends about it. They need to gift it so that this can actually be a vehicle to help people evolve And we can have better, stronger cross-racial relationships in our neighborhoods, at work, and even with the person who sleeps next to you. Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a whole different conversation. We won't get into that. (laughs) So, Fatima, why don't you give us some examples of your rules? What are kind of your favorite rules that you like to talk about?
0: I think there are so many helpful rules. I mean, I really like my chapter where the rule is, It's not personal when people of color don't want to discuss race.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, because that's where a lot of us end up being. So this is from my chapter where the rule is, it's not personal when people of color don't want to discuss race. And uh, the you, you should know that the you in my writing is a white person. Mm -hmm. And then I explain in this chapter why it's the case, why people of color may not want to discuss race and what it's like. But to drive the point home, I conclude with this analogy. What it's like talking to you about race. Let's put this in perspective. Recall life living in the pandemic. Do you remember that haunting feeling you felt that never went away? That the virus was lurking at every corner? You couldn't escape it because there were reminders everywhere, on the news, online, in social media, and when you saw your neighbors or people on the street. You felt a sense of omnipresence as you walked around, always on high alert, looking at others, seeing if they wore masks, looked ill, or cough. You noticed them and observed how they reacted to you. You were in constant fear of your death. Loved ones may die or did die, and you felt perpetual anxiety. Your mental health was impacted along with your physical health and stress. You had trouble sleeping. You weren't even safe in your own home because the virus could come to your door. You didn't know if you could trust the government or if officials had your best interests at heart, unsure if they would do something to kill you. felt powerless, as if there were nothing you could do to change things to make your life better since you weren't in control. You had to resign yourself to your circumstance, but you didn't want to accept your reality. You wanted to resist and somehow make things better. When you tried, you didn't succeed. That's what it's like living under racism every day, 24-7, 365. Racism is a pervasive invisible force, just like COVID. There's no escape. It's constant, never a break or reprieve. It's isolating and marginalizing. It attacks your life, bank account, livelihood, housing, healthcare, schools, and dinner table, and separates your family. You want the government to do something about it, but politicians want you to laissez-faire your way to non-solutions absolving themselves of responsibility, woefully blind to its impact. You suck it up. You deal with the big picture systemic issues. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Heal yourself. Pave your destiny. Avoid your own death or murder. (laughs) Welcome to living like a black or brown person in America, but with racism. There's no vaccine coming. No magic pill to inoculate society. This is what it's been like since the 1500s. It isn't getting better. There are new strains, new waves, and invisible resurgences, mutating, reinventing itself, seemingly dormant but always there, stalking, ready to strike and viciously kill. This is the reality. It's bleak. When you want to discuss racism, sometimes people of color only want to discuss it with those who understand what they've gone through. Not white folks, who will trivialize things, which is akin to speaking to an anti-masker who berates innocent and defenseless store clerks, That's you questioning racism and their experiences. You're the (laughs) anti-masker, anti-waxer in the conversation. When you come with covert microaggressions, overt aggression, a lack of knowledge and a rejection of facts. Now, can you understand why no one wants to talk to you? They're already too busy trying to literally survive.
1: That is so great. And I realized something just now as I was giggling. It's also funny. Um, It may not be funny to the intended audience, but it's definitely funny to those of us who are sitting back going, oh my gosh, yeah, somebody should have said that out loud. So
0: thank you. Well, you you know me, Adrian. Yeah, you're welcome You know me because you've known me since, you know, Wellesley (laughs) College. So it's been a number of years. But I mean, I know for people who know me personally also can hear like my humor and Mm -hmm. the way that I speak about things come through. In my writing one thing that i really do like about having written this book is you know because i have lots of different writing styles right i Mm -hmm. can write the memo i can write the contract Mm -hmm. the legal document i could write you know some uh white paper i can write some you know scholarly report or you know whatever that's not my approach Mm -hmm. i am writing in the manner in which i think and say things sometimes in my head Mm -hmm. which is the ripped off band-aid version and sometimes, you know, with some colorful language.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's one um, rule in here. Oh, actually, there are two specific rules I wanted to talk to you about. And one of them has to do with the Jackie Robinson syndrome. You said yeah. end the Jackie Robinson syndrome. Would you talk
0: about what that is and what advice you're giving? So, uh, one thing that I do in the book is I invent words and phrases. <laughs> And Jackie Robinson syndrome is one of them. And so to help people out, I have a glossary at the end of the book that defines a lot of just general terms that people mm-hmm. might be curious about, but then also my word inventions. So Jackie Robinson syndrome is, you know, it's, it's a subset of tokenization, right? Mm-hmm. It's the lonely only, right? Mm-hmm. So that thinking that because we have someone like a Barack Obama or an Oprah Winfrey, that we are now in some post-racial world. People don't have to continue to push for change, and so Jackie Robinson syndrome is a way to cling to the one token, right? Where we have these first, but we never get to the third, the 20th, and the 80th, right? Mm -hmm. Cling to the first as some signal or sign of achievement of racial equality or diversity, and then people just get lazy and stop pushing for more, right? So, this gives so Jackie Robinson syndrome gives organizations an excuse to not have to do anything, right? Like, oh. We have one black board director, yeah. you know, our chief financial officer is Latina. Right. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, they don't have to do anything for anyone at the entry level or the middle management level or even in terms of people in their everyday lives who they're going to vote for. Yeah. And so Jackie Robinson syndrome is about using the lonely only to derail racial progress. hmm. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, I really appreciated that one because I feel like that's something that comes up a lot for me in my own work of trying to talk to people about what diversity looks like and also then what equity looks like. So the idea that you can have even your lonely only, but if you have them, they might not actually have any interest in the well-being of their group. So you got to have mix
0: it up. You do. And one thing that I like to say to clients, too, and just generally is not everybody wants to be Jackie Robinson. Mm -hmm. Not everybody wants to be the trailblazer. Right. Or wants to be held up because if you are the Jackie Robinson, whether you want to or not, Mm -hmm. you are the spokesperson. Yes. Right. You are the person who has to take on all the emotional labor. You know, being Jackie Robinson is tough, which is probably why the actual, real Jackie Robinson died of heart problems in his right, Mm -hmm. because this stuff takes a toll on you, and to the point of not wanting to be Jackie Robinson. If I think about my own journey, right, so I went to Wellesley College with you, then I went to the I went to Harvard University, got a master in public policy Mm -hmm. at the Kennedy School, and then I went to Columbia Law School. Now, I am originally from California. I could have gone to UC Berkeley to their law school and gotten in-state tuition, which would have been significantly cheaper than the student loans that I incurred to go to Columbia Law School. Mm-hmm. However, the state of California had just passed Prop 209, yeah, which made affirmative action illegal. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be Jackie Robinson. I mm-hmm. got into UC Berkeley after Prop 209, and I knew that I would be the lonely only. And I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? Law school is hard enough. I do not want to somehow be some spokesperson, some role model, some tokenized prop that is going to be, you know, dragged out when what I want to do is to get a good education, make some friends and not feel that every single day in class is an assault on my personhood. Right, right, right. Oh,
1: this book is going to be awesome. Okay, one (laughs) other rule that I want to talk about. Uh, you have a rule, I forget what number it is, but it's called culture splaining. Yes. Stop telling me about me. Yeah. Share what that means and what advice you give.
0: I mean, culture splaining is basically the culture race version of mansplaining, right? Mm-hmm. So people who are routinely continually telling someone else what they're supposed to feel, what their experience is about. It includes aspects of gaslighting right so it could be like just take my name for example fatima right i can't tell you how often people want to be like oh let me tell you about your name um do you think if i made it to this age i wouldn't already know about the origins of my name so why are you thank you sherlock for the unsolicited uh probably factually incorrect information that you just tried to tell me about me right so that's one aspect of it another aspect is you know, you have some some experience, and, and that you believe as a person of color was racist. You know, you got followed around in a store. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to an event and they think you're the waitstaff, as opposed mm-hmm. to maybe the person receiving the award at the gala. Mm-hmm. Right? All of these things can happen, and you tell someone else about it, and they're like. Uh, You know that wasn't racism. Or when when I went to the store, that store, they never treated me like that. Well, okay, okay, Becky, I get it that they didn't treat Mm -hmm. you the way. But you know, your name was not Rashad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So stop telling me about me. And so basically, it's about pointing out why that's problematic, how it marginalizes people, how it makes them feel invisible, and that it undermines. you know, what they are trying to express about their lived experiences and that instead people should stop and pause and listen to what someone is saying. It also means that they shouldn't be gaslighting and telling someone what they felt and experienced wasn't exactly what they just told them that it was. Hmm.
1: Hmm. I think one of the things that'll be really useful about this, and now that we're having this conversation, it's even clearer to me. There are Plenty of academics out there who study cultures that are not their own. So they are, in fact, or ostensibly experts uh, on different cultures. Right. So white women who are experts in black feminist studies and other groups of people, black folks who are experts in Chinese culture. Right. And I think there's real value in This level of conversation for those folks, because there is a difference between being an expert in the study of black feminism and being a black woman. True. Preach. Never heard. I find that that there is. I mean, I have myself been in situations where someone will ask me, did you do any women's studies courses in college? I was like, no, didn't. I went to Wellesley. I studied economics and French. I didn't have time to do women's studies. So, yeah, I don't know what they did in women's studies. Um, Well, are you familiar with Black feminist work? Yeah, I am. I'm I'm familiar with it. You know, I didn't study it. Well, let me help you understand why this concern you have is, you know, why this is happening. Or let me help you understand how Black women have addressed this in other situations. What? What? No. You may not tell me how I'm supposed to react to things because you have a doctorate in black feminist studies.
0: Well, and I think uh, to be perfectly frank, you know, that kind of experience speaks to, you know, the colonizer mentality, Mm -hmm. to be perfectly frank. Like, I do want white people to study black feminist research and I want them to be scholars. I Mm -hmm. welcome it. I welcome somebody who wants to study who is white or South Asian, whatever their background is, Mm -hmm. to to study something like the history of Native Americans in this country, right? You know, and so, but to your point, it is interesting when somebody then wants to either use that as an opportunity to somehow think that one, you solicited that kind Mm -hmm. of information from that was an Mm -hmm. unsolicited, you know, unilateral conveyance Mm -hmm. of information that they could have kept to themselves, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it's also negating the innate knowledge that you have living as a Black woman your entire life every single day that you breathe air on this earth. Mm-hmm. And somehow that that study that the person did is supposed to usurp or be, you know, superior to your own experiences. Yes. But getting to an even deeper issue, right? So then it's like, who then... And I'm not trying to knock the people that study these areas because mm-hmm. what happens is then the traditional caste system and constructs come into play. But when it it is like, who is going to be elevated to Mm -hmm. monetize something and get an opportunity? The opportunity is going to fall along traditional racialized structures. So, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know, the, whatever the Flower Moon film is, that's something of the Flower Moon, right? Yes, the killing of the Flower Moon, is that it? I have the book. And I'm not saying that this should not be made into a film. I'm not saying that at all, or that the book shouldn't have been published. But mm-hmm. I find it interesting that the film, to my understanding, was written by a white man, right? And so my my point in raising this, not to knock him, I think he's mm-hmm. written, I own the book, right? Mm-hmm. But when something then becomes like this big celebrated blockbuster of a film that's getting these Oscars and these nominations, it's... The, the time that the story becomes centered is the story that is written by a white person as opposed to a story that is written that from somebody that might be Osage yes. or from the Native American community. Again, I'm not trying to knock that, but that is an example. Another example is I'm in this space where I speak about race, diversity, leadership, all kinds of stuff, right? But now I've written race rules. The reality is when it comes to speaking on a conference, or someone were to ask me to do a TED talk or something, you know, these kinds of opportunities, right? You know, I find it really disturbing that people who are experts in this field, that the panelists or the keynote speaker that's selected will either get paid more or mm-hmm. get more speaking opportunities when that person is white. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. what is happening. You up have like right now, Black History Month. Oh, yeah. In, and and. You know, who sometimes gets dragged out for these opportunities to share their scholarship, their intellectual property, their expertise and perspective is not always somebody from that community. And right. we really have to analyze that. And I find it problematic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Fatima, I am looking forward to seeing this book proliferate and uh, hearing more about uh, how people are using it. So as we come to the end of our conversation, I've got two questions for you. Lay it on me. What is your definition of equity and how does it show up in your life and work?
0: Okay, so my definition of equity is focused on what provides people with fair access given the circumstances and the realities of the challenges and barriers or opportunities that have been ahead of them. So I'm not talking about equality where we give everybody the same thing. Because not everyone is starting at the same place, right? So if you were, you know, if you think about the experience of many white people in this country, and they're going to run a race, you know, there are very few obstacles Mm -hmm. in their way for that course. But for a person of color, there might be sand pits, you know, they might have to show up with no shoes to the race, there might Mm -hmm. be spikes on the field, Mm -hmm. you know, there are going to be all kinds of barriers. So when you're thinking about wanting to have a fair shot at the finish line, a fair shot at the race, you're going to have to make some adjustments so that that access becomes equalized. It becomes mm-hmm. more equitable. So to me, it's not about saying that everyone is the same because that just negates the reality of the world. And yeah. instead the approach to equity is realistic within a structural, systemic, historic, statistical outcome be viewed kind of way. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of how does equity show up in my work in my life? You know, it's very much around the work that I'm doing, trying Mm -hmm. to make sure that people can drive equitable decision making Mm -hmm. right in their leadership, and that that equity and using something like race rules along the way, or some of the principles in it, including my bedrock race rule, which we haven't touched on, but it really helps people make a three, it's a three-step process to equitable decision-making. Mm-hmm. You know, how can your organizations get to that point? I'm focused on helping them do that. And that's why I wrote a book to help them do that in their personal and professional lives. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you for
1: taking the time to talk with me about this. Thank you for having me. I've really
0: enjoyed speaking with you, my wells sister.
1: Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> So if people want to find you, how can they go about, you know, looking you up?
0: That, you know, they can look me up by going to fatimagilliam.com, which is F-A-T-I-M-A-H-G-I-L-L-I-A-M. Um, and they can find me there. They could also just Google, you know, Fatima Gilliam and race rules and they'll easily find my website, which has information about the book, including conversation discussion guide that people can download. You know, Google me and you'll find me.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. So go out and find Fatima Gilliam, y'all. Thanks, Fatima. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Equitable. To connect and see the work we do to make equity actionable and to find all episodes of this podcast, visit StandpointConsulting.com. You can also follow us on social media at Standpoint Consulting.